Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Kellen, have you ever been in so much debt that you felt like it had taken over your life? No, I wouldn't say it had taken over my life, but... There was a time when we had a car breakdown and it was beyond repair and it was a vehicle that we still owed quite a bit of money on. And the way it all played out as we tried to get a new car, it made it so that we were upside down on our vehicle loan for a long time and we were having to make large payments. And even just that felt suffocating. And I, you know, answer to your question, I say it didn't take over our lives and yet, if you are at a point, you know, at the time, we were kind of going further into the red every month, like just trying to keep up with expenses. We weren't able to do that. And I will say it impacted just about every other aspect of life, at least mental bandwidth, mental capacity. It was kind of all consuming. It was always on my mind. Yeah, I've been there as well. You know, there, there was a spot for me where regular expenses were going on credit cards right? And every month saw the credit card bill stacking up higher and higher and the credit card payments were getting higher and higher. You know, whether that was being in between jobs or starting new jobs or whatever it was. But like you said, that mental bandwidth, it takes over. 
It's all you can think about. It is exhausting. Today's episode is on debt. We are going to talk about consumer debt, personal debts that that we have as individuals, and then also the national debt as well. There are severe consequences to debt. There is unsustainability to the way that we do our debt, and we're going to get into all of that. One thing that I want to mention up front is that we're not going to talk about things like whether or not debt is moral, whether you, you you have a moral obligation to pay your debts, or if you're an evil person, if you are a lender. And, you know, I've mentioned in the past that I don't really listen to the Ashes Ashes podcast, specifically because I don't want this podcast to mirror that one. I didn't want us to be doing the same episodes and doing them in the same way. But I have listened to the debt episode, and it was really interesting. They go more into like the history of debt and the morality of debt and some of those questions. Great episode. I recommend listening to it if you want to learn more about that side. Today, we're going to learn more about some numbers behind the situation we are currently in with debt and where that might lead us. And one thing that I want to share before we dive in is that during our early episodes, when you were first introducing me to Collapse, there was kind of a light bulb moment. I can't remember which episode it was, but at some point you painted the picture uh, of the way debt works on kind of a national level. And the fact that our economy depends on us growing at a certain percentage year over year just to keep up with the interest of our debt and those obligations. And something about that is when it really clicked for me, like to think that's not sustainable. I think like you mentioned before, debt in the way that we're doing it and the trends that we're on is something totally not sustainable. Anytime something is not sustainable, that means it's bound to decline, you know, or in this case collapse. But I think it's also important to talk about debt because whether on a personal level or on a grander scale, when other challenges come our way, the more debt that we're in, the more vulnerable we are to those challenges. And that's not a difficult concept to understand, right? If like you talked about before, you are already in debt up to your eyeballs. You're trying to keep up with credit card payments and that debt is only increasing Well, then when a medical emergency comes along or something else that impacts you in a major financial way, you've got no buffer there to be able to handle that. So I think the unsustainability and the vulnerability that comes with our ever-increasing debt is such an important topic under the broader topic of collapse. You know, you just brought up an episode that we did previously, one of our first episodes on the financial system. It was episode six. And I think that might be a good place to kind of start and recap just a couple ideas from there really quick when it comes to debt. So one of the first things there was that money is created from debt. Pretty much all the money in our system gets put into the system when a new debt is taken on. If this is foreign to you as the listener, go back and listen to episode six because we walk through this really well. But when you realize that money created is done out of debt plus interest owed, it means that there is always going to be more debt in the system than there is money. And that is the case today. I don't know the exact numbers about debt versus cash, but I do know that there's a significant amount more money owed than there is money that exists to pay it. And so it creates this feedback loop where in order to pay the interest on the debt that we owe, we have to grow by at least that much. And that's what you were just referring to where 
basically it's an 8% year over year annual increase in debt. And in that episode, we talked about how, okay, well, that means that in like the 2040s, we're going to be at some just insane numbers of trillions of dollars of debt that's owed, which also means that our economy has to grow in step with that. So people are going to have to continue to take out loans for businesses, for cars, for houses, for, you know, educations, whatever it may be, credit cards. In order for the economy to function, we have to increase the amount of debt that we are taking on. And so I think for this episode, we're going to start on the consumer side and talk about some of that consumer debt and how that's changing and what some of the impacts could be. And then from there, we'll talk about national debts and the liability that comes from um, a, a nation taking on debt as well. So then, starting with consumer debt, U.S. household debt is at a record high of $16.5 trillion in the third quarter of 2022. When we talk about household debt, there's kind of two terms here, consumer debt and household debt. Consumer debt is the individual person's debt. Obviously, household is going to be everybody who lives in one house. So $16.5 trillion in the second quarter, we had barely hit $16 trillion. So a pretty rapid increase. It was an 8.3% increase year over year and a 2.2% increase from one quarter to the next. These debts we're talking about with consumer debt is everything from mortgage to student loans to car loans to home equity lines of credit to credit card debt. So there's lots of different categories there. But this growth in that debt was the fastest increase in 15 years. The last time was 2007, right before the economic crash. Even just going back to the first quarter of 2021, the total consumer debt at that time was $14.5 So there are some very significant things in what you just said. Like what I'm hearing from you is that, first of all, we're at a record amount of household debt and that it went up from $16 trillion to 16.5 it went up half a trillion just quarter over quarter correct and that was the fastest growth that we've seen since 2007 right wow yeah and the the biggest growth of that so the biggest category that we grow, grew in was mortgages which is no real surprise right now when you consider the housing market and and how wild it's been these last couple of years it rose a trillion dollars year over year Credit card debt climbed to $930 billion. So in the U.S., we are rapidly approaching consumers owing $1 trillion to credit card companies. In episode six that we were just talking about, we kind of laid out what a trillion dollars is because you get up to those high numbers and it's hard to really imagine it, right? It's a billion, 1,000 times. We talk about how if you laid $1,000 bills stacked neatly side by side, it would stretch, I can't remember how many miles it was, like 60 miles or something. So a trillion dollars is a lot of money. And it's scary to think that individuals have stacked up that type of debt on high interest credit cards. Credit card debt rose 15% year over year, which is the highest annual jump in the last 20 years. So these are significant numbers. And these are all things that are happening now, just in the last couple of quarters. A really important number to look at when it comes to household debt is household debt to income ratios. How much are people going into debt versus how much money are they making? Just five years ago, we were around a 130% debt to income ratio, 
which think about that. The average household owes 130% of what they make in one year. Now, just five years later, we're averaging around 145%. These are US numbers, by the way. Um, in the UK, it's sitting around 133%. In Australia, it's 120%. Canada, though, has the worst off at around 182%. So Canada is significantly higher than the others. And this is wild. In 1980, Canada's debt to income was 66%. So at that time, just 40 years ago, the average family owed only 66% of what they made in a year. Now it's 180%. The majority of debt does come from mortgages. In the US, out of those $16.5 trillion, 11, uh, just under 11.5 is mortgages. The rest is made up of those others, you know, student loans, auto loans, credit cards, home equity, and others. Auto loans, though, have reached new highs. This was an interesting stat that was in an article I read. Uh, nearly 16% of buyers in the fourth quarter of 22, this is uh, auto loan buyers, their loans were at least $1,000. So of all the vehicles bought, 16% of them were, are paying $1,000 per month for their vehicles. Okay, to clarify, you said their loans are $1,000, but what you meant to say was their monthly payment on those auto loans was $1,000 a month. That's right. Yep. Sorry for misspeaking. 1000 bucks a month. I remember my first car when we got married, we paid $250 a month. And I remember feeling like that was so high. It was scary to, to pay $250 a month and to think, you know, one out of every seven people or so is paying $1,000 per month. $1,000 per month on a car loan. How can anyone afford that? Yeah, that's, that's more than a normal like rent or mortgage a decade ago, right? The average price for a new vehicle has nearly hit $50,000. And so this brings up the point that much of this increase in debt has to do with inflation. We've talked recently about how wages are not staying caught up with the rates of inflation that we're seeing. Inflation has been a huge deal these last couple of years, peaking at over 9%. And so the cost of buying things is going up, especially the things that we need to go into debt for often. So homes are up way more than 9%, right? We're in like the 20% or something range of, of annual increases in home costs in some areas. Used and even new vehicles for a couple years after the pandemic were extremely hard to get. Prices for them were going up as well. And so while debt in the U.S. has been a problem for decades and decades, just over the last couple of years, it's been getting worse. And consumers are starting to over leverage it. You know, earlier I mentioned that year over year consumer debt increased by 8.3% this last year. If we were to continue to grow our debt at 8.3% annually, a decade from now, that debt would go from $16.5 trillion to over $37 trillion, well above our current debt levels. Now, I, I do want to point out, when we talk about debt, debt isn't always necessarily a bad thing, right? Debt can be leveraged in a healthy way, you know, to give people access to things that they wouldn't have otherwise. If you had to save up 100% to get a mortgage, very few people would own homes and we would all be sort of renting forever, right? So debt has its place. The scary part comes in when we're talking about over-leveraging people, like you said, becoming vulnerable to shocks to the system. 
Yeah, I think it's a major factor in the resiliency of individuals. And it has impacts on individuals. You know, if if any sort of emergency or just financial issue comes up in their life, the ability to withstand that, that's going to be that much more difficult depending on how much debt you're in. But it also has a much larger impact collectively. You think about 2008 and the recession, the crisis that happened there, it was that people were over leveraged specifically with mortgages. People had purchased homes that they couldn't afford and eventually that catches up. And it has kind of this snowball effect where as a handful of people, when I say a handful, I just mean it can be a relatively small amount of the population that starts defaulting on their loans. That throws the whole economy into chaos. It makes it so that lenders then change what they're willing to do and and what kind of loans they're willing to give. They struggle to make payments on their own debts. Everyone gets spooked. It affects interest rates. It affects stock prices. And it grows into this problem that impacts everybody. You know, speaking of 2008, it's interesting because in the immediate years afterwards, 2008 through maybe 2013 or so, it looked like consumer habits were changing a bit. Like it was a wake-up call. People were saving a little bit more. People were borrowing less. The things they were borrowing for were much more conservative. Uh, You know, one thing I saw said that less than 1% of people after the crisis were borrowing from their home equity, so getting like a home equity line of credit, in order to deal in investment properties. But... These same studies found that it didn't take long for people to get right back into the same habits as before. Now, it doesn't mean that the banks are lending as frivolously or as risky as they were before, but people have been willing to go back and basically stop saving, keep spending, and now even more so on risky types of debt like credit cards. It's interesting that when it comes to things like savings, you know, you talked about resiliency and how important it is, you know, financial security, people are saving so much less money than they used to. It used to be that 10 to 12% plus of your annual income is what you would have in your savings account on average, the average American. Today, it's somewhere down around 3 or 4%. Back in 2018, a study was done. You, you hear this number a lot. Basically, 35% of US adults reported that they would not be able to pay off their bills if faced with a $400 emergency. And so when you have so many people living paycheck to paycheck, it does make you more vulnerable to a shock in the system. And it doesn't even have to be a shock in the system as a whole. It can be a shock in your own system, right? When we talk about resiliency, if you are living paycheck to paycheck, if you are in deep credit card debt, don't have any savings, and you lose your job, or like you said, a medical expense comes along, it makes you much more vulnerable. And obviously, this is not something that individuals can just solve. So many people are in debt because they're forced to be, right? It's not because they're spending frivolously necessarily, but because the situation they're in just doesn't allow them for you know, to get out of it. And I feel for the people who are going through what we described having been through and much worse than our situations were at this point in their lives. So it comes down to there's vulnerability in personal collapse and there's vulnerability to the system as a whole. Because as we know right now, the Fed is trying 
to bring down the economy, right? Their goal, their stated goal is to bring employment rates down. They want to cause some pain in order to slow inflation. So not only is it that there's shocks to the system that happen outside of our control, it's literally within the Fed's control at this point to try to cause shocks to the system. And so if people are not prepared for that, and if there is too much frivolous spending and unemployment rates correct too far, they go too high, we have you know risk of defaults. And those defaults can cascade as we saw in, in 2008. And I think it's a good reminder that all of the different aspects that we've talked about related to collapse, like when we talk about climate issues and, you know, resource depletion, and we talk about biodiversity loss and all of these things, as those are happening, the way that it's going to present itself for the majority of people is in the form of economic issues. People think of collapse sometimes and and they have this picture in their mind of what that's going to look like. Oftentimes it's really extreme and epic and Hollywood-ized, right? But the reality is, as more of these problems hit, it's just going to look like it's harder and harder to make ends meet. It becomes that much more challenging to be able to pay your utilities, right? And, and keep the lights on in your house and be able to feed your family. And the thing about debt is sometimes people think about their house and they're like, oh, I have all this equity in my home. But if you've been paying your mortgage consistently and now you have $50,000 of equity in your home, it's not like it's just a bank account that you can necessarily go withdraw from. Like there are home equity lines of credit, but if you get to the point where you're defaulting on your mortgage, the bank isn't going to come say like, Hey, sorry, I know things are tough. We're going to hand you this $50,000 of equity from your home. In 2008, when people were so over leveraged on their mortgage, I mean, they were, they were losing everything when it all kind of hit the fan, right? Yeah. And there's, there's no telling what the immediate future is going to hold, right? What is the next financial crisis like? What is the next economic crisis? What will cause it? How extensive will it be? We really don't know. But what we do know is that the continuing increase of debt, which is made necessary by our economic system in order for our economics to to function, that debt is going to increase. But it does continually increase the vulnerability that we all experience sort of as the, the system continues. One thing to think about, if our debt has to continually increase, but birth rates are slowing down, for example, in the U.S., we have this expectation of continuing economic growth, growth in GDP, and a growth in debt that comes with that. If there are less and less people, less consumers being brought into the system to create that debt, that means that the people who are already here have to take on more. And that's why we see that these debt-to-income ratios for households are increasing so much. One thing I know I've mentioned to you, Corey, in the past is that just a couple of months ago, a friend of mine extended an invitation. He works for like a wealth management company. He said, hey, we're going to do this like hour-long seminar kind of thing. People are invited. We'll feed you lunch. And so I went with another friend to attend that. And they had these experts presenting and they were showing all sorts of you know charts and graphs and and the theme 
of the event was like, are we going into a recession and what to do about it? And so they were showing all the different indicators and they were saying, this is really weird and unprecedented what's happening right now. Like usually when stocks go down, bonds go up, vice versa, but they're both going down together and we're seeing this and that. And they showed one chart that was just so interesting. I wish I could describe it. I I don't think I'll do a very good job. But the gist of it was they were showing how with all the stimulus that came along during the heat of the pandemic, uh, people had more money in their bank account. They were able to show that over time, people had burned through that money and were going more and more into debt. And as of a couple months ago, at at the time of this presentation, they were showing that the trend was people were starting to default on their debt. And so I don't know exactly where we're at now, but it seems like that trend has only continued. And with all the other economic challenges and chaos and headwinds that are going on, in addition to what you're talking about with this increased debt at such an alarming level, I'm really nervous about what the coming months are going to look like. You know, there was this one article that I read. I found it... <laughs> interesting and frustrating. It was talking about the US economy and will it collapse? And it was talking about how terrible it would be if the economy would collapse. But the main gist of this article, this was in um, The Balance. It's a economic sort of investment type online magazine. And they were saying, yes, it would be so terrible if if the economy collapsed. Here's all these awful things that would happen. And, and they basically just described collapse, right? You wouldn't have food in the grocery stores you all trucks would stop everything would shut down but then they said okay so is it going to collapse and they were like no the article basically just said the economy is not going to collapse because the government has ways to stop that from happening and they're using these historical examples of the government getting us out of economic collapse through you know increasing interest rates lowering interest rates kind of using some of their different levers, quantitative easing, putting more money into the system and acting like, okay, well, they've done it before. And so the economy will never collapse. And I thought that was really interesting because there's just such a disconnect. This is all looking at things from our sort of fake fiat economy which is a very surface level way to look at things when the real economy, right? The energy, the resources that are put into the system where wealth originates, we know that because of collapse, those things are not forever. They are diminishing the rate at which we can extract and utilize them and convert them to capital is slowing down. And so as demand for those things is ever increasing as debt demand goes up, it's going to at some point become impossible to service those things. And at that, that point, there is nothing that the government can do about it. Another interesting aspect to this article, it talked about, you know, are any countries in danger of ec- economic collapse? And obviously we've seen that. It talked about some poorer nations, um, Ethiopia, Kenya, Zambia, Afghanistan, Haiti, Samoa, Tonga, could be in danger of financial collapse unless the countries they owe money to continue to offer debt relief. And I'm just going to make another plug because we're not going to go into this here, but another plug for that Ashes, Ashes episode because they go into the type of debt that countries go into, developing countries, and how wealthier nations basically enslave those countries by putting them into debt. 
I think it's one of the most frustrating parts about talking about economic collapses is that economists love to reject that it can really happen simply because, you know, they're looking at the last like 50 years of data and saying that it hasn't and that the government can pull us out. It seems like these days nobody wants to look at the real economy. They just want to look at what makes sense on paper when you write it down and do make-believe math. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, speaking of the government and, and the government's ability to just come in and rescue us. I think some of the things that I'll share in just a moment might change somebody's perspective on that if they think that's the case. Because the government itself, even here in the U.S., is in need of rescuing. You've talked about consumer debt, household debt, you know, what this looks like for individuals, particularly individuals within the United States. But let's look at national debt, the government's debt. And I've made the mistake in the past in, you know, I, I've, I've said like the deficit and I've talked about the national debt in the same sentence, all within the same breath and, and kind of use those interchangeably. They're not the same, though they are related. I think the most concise way to make sure we understand what we're talking about when we talk about national debt is a really good definition that actually comes from a government website. So this is fiscaldata.treasury.gov. And at one point on this website, it says, in a given fiscal year, when spending exceeds revenue, a budget deficit results. To pay for this deficit, the federal government borrows money by selling marketable securities such as treasury bonds, bills, notes, floating rate notes, and treasury inflation protected securities. The national debt is the accumulation of this borrowing along with associated interest owed to the investors who purchased these securities. As the federal government experiences reoccurring deficits, which is common, the national debt grows. And by the way, speaking of government websites, it's really interesting. I didn't know how much data was out there publicly, but there was actually an act, the 2014 Data Act, that required federal agencies to submit financial data. They have to do it on a quarterly or a monthly basis. And you can like see all of this on usaspending.gov. I played around on the website for a little while and was just fascinated. You can you can see it broken down by like department, government department, or by spending category, and you can see just how much debt and spending is happening in all these different ways. 
One thing to note when we're talking about the national debt, it doesn't include debts carried by like state governments or local governments. It's not including debts carried by individuals like this consumer debt that you talked about. It's just federal debt, debt of the national government. So with that in mind, let me share a couple of numbers that I think are going to be kind of mind-blowing. When you adjust for inflation and then you look over the past 100 years, the U.S. federal debt has increased from $409 billion to $30.93 trillion in 2022. Sometimes you look at numbers and you see this kind of hockey stick curve, this exponential curve. You see just in dollars that the national debt has increased dramatically. But when it's actually adjusted for inflation and it still has that huge hockey stick curve, to me, that's really concerning. So that's like a 75 times increase in the amount of debt in just the last 100 years. And I know that so much of that has happened just in the last handful of years as well, right? When we did our episode six, I think the national debt was somewhere around $27 trillion. And that was right after 2020 when they had done like $4 trillion in that year alone with all the stimulus and bailouts and all that stuff. Yeah, from fiscal year 2019 to fiscal year 2021, spending increased by about 50%. Wow. But even then, even when you adjust for inflation, many people say, well, that's not exactly a great measure. Really what you want to look at is the debt to GDP ratio. Similar to how with consumer debt, you talked about how, you know, you look at debt to income ratio. Here we're talking about a country's debt to its gross domestic product. I'll read one statement from this same website that I cited earlier. This ratio is considered a better indicator of a country's fiscal situation than just the national debt number because it shows the burden of debt relative to the country's total economic output and therefore its ability to repay it. There's a website that's very anxiety inducing. <laughs> I shared it with you, Corey. I think you've seen it before. Yeah, I already know it. I already know which one you're talking about. It's usdebtclock.org. And it shows all these numbers and they're all ticking up as you're watching them. But I mean, it's got like 50 different numbers on there, right? So the whole screen just feels like it's moving all the time. Yeah. There are some static numbers that are stated. So to give some perspective, let me walk you through the last several decades. In 1960, the federal debt to GDP ratio was 53.37%. In 1980, it had dropped. It was at 34.49%. The year 2000, it was back up even a little higher than 1960, 59.61%. Now, it is 121.5%. And actually, I think what's more accurate, according to one of these government websites that I've mentioned, is that it's 124%. So 124%, you know, our our debt to GDP ratio. To me, that's really scary. And going back to what I mentioned about that light bulb moment when you were describing how we have to keep growing in order to just keep up with the interest on our debt, I'll share this. As of December 2022, so just this last month, it costs $210 billion to maintain the debt, which is 15% of 
the total federal spending. So 15% of everything that's being spent on the national federal level is just going towards servicing the debt. Basically, it's interest payments. Exactly. And as you know, with debt, it just continues to compound if you don't ever cut back your spending. Now, there's another really interesting website. This is called truthinaccounting.org. And, you know, I mentioned before that we're at a point where, as a nation, uh, our federal government is looking at $31.2 trillion in debt. However, this other calculation, they say, that's not true. That's understated. And the reason they're able to claim that is because they say that number doesn't include the total unfunded Social Security and Medicare promises. So as we look to the future, specifically the next 75 years, Social Security and Medicare, there's there's these promises that are in place. There are certain payments we're going to have to make. If you include that in the debt number, they say the U.S. published national debt is that $31.2 trillion, but the truth is $147.8 trillion. I thought you were going to like add, I don't know, 10% on or something, but you basically quadrupled the number there. Yeah, and get this. They break it down this way. They say each taxpayer's share is $936,000. Million dollars a person seems doable. Well, you hear talk often about Social Security being shut down and Medicare being shut down, and those numbers right there are enough to tell me why people say that. Yeah, so now that you understand the situation that we're in, I'll share that just yesterday, at the time of recording this, just yesterday, a New York Times article was published. The title of it is, The U.S. May Finally Breach the Debt Ceiling. Here's Why That Would Be Very Bad. And to give kind of a a summary of how this works, there is this debt limit, and there are always arguments within our political system of whether we should lift the debt limit. Lifting the debt limit doesn't actually authorize any new spending. It just allows the U.S. to finance their existing obligations. Right. So it's not that they're asking to be able to spend more money on new things. They're just asking to be able to spend the money on things that they already have obligations for, like Social Security and Medicare and all the other numerous pieces of infrastructure. Exactly. It it just allows the government to actually pay its bills. Which, by the way, it's interesting because the U.S. is one of the only countries in the world that has this system of requesting that. I believe it's us in Denmark. Every other nation, if there is a debt required in order to pay the bills, it's just assumed and done. But in the U.S., we like to play this game where Democrats and Republicans fight about it for a while. Conservatives, if there's a Democrat in the White House, then conservatives will use it as an opportunity to negotiate on spending and the budget, and it's this big fight, and it usually comes down to the last minute of trying to figure this out before we default. That's exactly it. So when you talk about actually defaulting, there's been a lot of analysis done. At one point, Goldman Sachs, they determined that the date at which the United States will run out of cash is sometime around August. Other factors have come into play since that analysis, and they think it could be even sooner, but the expectation is that this coming summer, that's when we're going to hit that date. 
again, right? Like we're going to hit that date again. This isn't something that's a once in a lifetime thing. We are semi frequently having to do this negotiation where permission is granted to raise the debt ceiling. Yeah, that's spot on. Now, Kevin McCarthy has already claimed that he's going to use that debt limit standoff to try to negotiate like you talked about, try to enact these spending cuts and try to reduce the national debt. Biden has repeatedly said he's going to refuse to negotiate over the debt limit and that Congress has to vote to raise it with no strings attached. So they're each taking a hard stance and digging their heels in. You know, I'm just really glad that we have cool, you know, rational people on both sides of the aisle who are going to make sure that the the best things are done for the American people, right? Yeah. Rational. Level-headed. <laughs> humble. It's definitely the words I think of when I think of our politicians. Definitely not narcissistic at all. <laughs> so I'll read this statement from the article. By choosing not to pay some combination of social security checks, federal workers, bondholders, and more. In other words, if they don't lift the debt limit and they have to choose some of their bills not to pay, the government would be immediately killing the equivalent of one-tenth of American economic activity, Goldman Sachs analysts have estimated. It later says, researchers at Third Way, a democratic think tank, estimated last month that a debt limit breach could kill up to 3 million jobs at $130,000 to the cost of an average 30-year mortgage and balloon the national debt by an additional $850 billion. So it's, it's been made clear, you know, the U.S. has never defaulted on its debt. It has never just not paid its bills. If it were to happen, nobody really knows exactly what the impact would be. But there is consensus that it would be completely catastrophic for not only the U.S. economy, but for the world economy. And I think it's important to really quick point out, because I think some people conflate these two, that a default is different than a shutdown. We hear about government shutdowns every once in a while and how they try and avert those. The government has been shut down in the past. That does things like close national parks, um, in some of the non-essential employment and things like that on the federal level get shut down until those things are resolved. A default, like you just said, has never happened, and it would entail so much more than that. The government, from some things that I read, basically it said it, it couldn't pay its bills. It couldn't function at that point. It wouldn't just be the non-essential workers. It would be all workers, right? You, you mentioned that it's unknown to what degree, how, how bad it would necessarily be, but there is common thinking that it would destroy trust in the dollar it could result in the dollar losing its place as the world reserve currency and have so many implications, not just in the U.S., but globally as well. Right. And that's a very extreme scenario. I don't think it's going to take place that way. I don't think that the government will not come to an agreement and suddenly not lift the debt limit and all of this craziness will happen. I think instead it will probably come down to the last minute just like it has in the past and then they'll reach an agreement and they'll lift the debt limit. However, even then, it's not a great thing. In 2011, it was a similar situation. The Republicans in Congress were at this standoff with President Barack Obama 
came down to the last minute and then it was finally resolved. But even that really rattles the economy. Investors get spooked, consumers, business owners, they all get scared and it creates all this volatility. In talking about that event, 2011, the article states, stock prices plunged and volatility in the market spiked as lawmakers approached a debt limit breach. They did not recover for half a year. The cost of borrowing for corporations, which fluctuates with the level of risk that investors perceive in the economy, jumped dramatically. That made it more expensive for companies to borrow to make new investments. Mortgage rates spiked similarly, hampering prospective home buyers. The credit agency S&P downgraded America's credit rating for the first time. So we're at a really interesting point right now where we're seeing record inflation. We're seeing increased consumer debt. We're seeing historic levels of national debt. There are all of these economic headwinds that we're up against. And already people can't afford to get into a home because like you said, the Fed is increasing interest rates. But we can see that the last time there was one of these standoffs between Congress and the president, it caused mortgage rates to spike. It caused interest rates in general to spike for companies to be able to borrow money, for example. And so it seems like we're headed into a situation where all of the scary things in the economy are only going to be exacerbated by this kind of a standoff. And, you know, this can only get worse over time as the share of the overall expenses grow for the cost of servicing the debt, right? If right now you're saying that the interest payments are 15% of the overall budget, that number is increasing. And at some point, interest becomes so high as we continue to raise the debt ceiling that it doesn't leave room in the budget for anything else. We're just paying interest to everyone who owns U.S. debt. And from there, it's a natural sort of segue into talking about catabolic collapse and what happens when there is no money to spend on essential infrastructure and how little by little, piece by piece, those things are dismantled. And a lot of that comes down to these conversations about raising the debt ceiling and things that um, you know parties are trying to eliminate. As budgets are being disputed, it might come down to one party, again, typically conservatives saying, we have to ax this stuff from the budget. And sometimes that's right. I mean, yes, we have too many expenses for the money that we have. On the other end of things, well, we have to have those things to make our society run. And so Cladabalt Collapse is saying, okay, well, we have to hear a little there, a little chip away at the funds and resources that are going to these different pieces of infrastructure until those pieces of infrastructure no longer function properly, they fall apart. And eventually so much of that foundation is ripped away that it becomes unstable and and it's basically a shell of its former self, right? That's the fiscal idea of catabolic collapse. And I think that is the method by which we see that happening in the government. Yeah, when we talk about the U.S. actually defaulting on its loans, not paying its bills, like I said, I, I doubt that's going to happen anytime soon. But how long can we go increasing our levels of debt and all of that interest that we owe on the debt until we just can't, we can't afford to pay our bills. That's route A that would cause a serious economic crash, total chaos worldwide. And route B is that we actually cut down on our spending 
But like you said, it's a form of catabolic collapse in which we're pulling from this program and this program and all this infrastructure that we built for ourselves kind of implodes. There's just not an easy solution. If there was, I'm sure we would have found it by now. There might be better solutions like cut spending for military costs, which we did an entire episode on, right? Or uh, being able to cut out some of the fat of the bureaucratic systems and processes. But that's not the route that's ever taken. We remove things like Trump gutted, I don't remember the name of the, the federal organization, but there was an organization that was supposed to help monitor for and detect pandemics, study them uh, specifically in China, and that was gutted right before the pandemic, right? And look how that resulted. Those are the types of programs that we're taking away from. I think we'd be naive to believe that the government would start with the military industrial complex and even think about taking money away from that. No, it's going to be your libraries first, right? It's going to be your roads and the conditions of your roads. It's going to be on the upkeep of transportation infrastructure. So those are the types of things that slowly get eroded away or quickly get eroded away. You can listen to any of our episodes on infrastructure to see the state of those. And those are all the things, Kellen, that, that you're talking about saying slowly over time, they're going to continue to be degraded rather than having this one big default explosion. Yeah. And you know, if, if you were the one pulling the levers and pressing the buttons and you had to choose whether to do a big cut to either like healthcare or infrastructure or national security, like which one do you choose? Right. And it's tough. You know, I, I think about like, let's say there's an individual, if you're making a parallel to physical health, somebody who has just been gluttonous and let's say because of their own choices, not because of some uh, genetic factors or anything like that, but just because of their own choices has become extremely obese. They get to a point where doctors are saying like, if you continue this way, you're going to have a heart attack at any day. You've got to dial it back. You've got to get exercise. You've got to start eating less. It's painful to do either one or both of those things. But we've taken it so far. We've become so dependent that it's almost like like we've already been living off of like a feeding tube that's just automated. And we're to a point where we're we're stuck in a wheelchair. We we can't do exercise. Like we were the people in Wally, right? That move around in those little motorized chairs everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the picture I'm trying to paint. Like you can't just suddenly go from that sort of lifestyle to like hours of exercise a day and thousands less calories like that will kill you. But when, when we're at such an extreme point already, those kind of big drastic steps are the only thing that are going to potentially save us. Anyways, that's probably not a great parallel, but it's just, it's just this idea that something has to give. We can't continue like this and whatever it is that does give, whether it's by choice or whether it's forced upon us is going to be pretty extreme if it's, if it's going to get us back to a level of equilibrium. And you know, one topic of, of a way to get us to an equilibrium, this is one that was brought up in the ashes ashes episode is the idea of a debt Jubilee. And that's something that you hear kind of brought up every once in a while. I have no idea how something like that could or would be implemented but I have heard it as a legitimate, it's the only way. 
that at some point for the system to, to reset and continue, there would need to be a forgiveness of all debt. And it's something that's been done in the past, not the immediate past, right, in our modern culture, but something that used to be done frequently on, on, a, on a cadence. It was, it was a normal thing to have happen for debt to be forgiven, for the system to rejuvenate, for kind of a reset to start over. Something about that just sounds so wonderful. You know, the idea of all debt just being forgiven and kind of just saying, screw you to the banks. Will that ever happen? Is there any possibility of that? I don't know. Maybe that'll be a, another episode that we do to talk about legitimately what what a Jubilee quarter would look like if it was even possible. I'm sure it doesn't sound nice for the banks. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what what would a reset look like? starting from zero, right? But you also think about Jubilees and you think, well, if everybody knew there was a Jubilee coming, everyone would just take on a ton of debt and just the very limit of what they could manage knowing that it was going to be taken away, right? So obviously there's there's limits to that idea, but but like like you're saying, something has got to give. And if the banks or the government refuse to make the banks be the ones that give, it's going to be one of the two scenarios that you've spoken of. And the direction that we're headed, it seems that way, right? Every time there's a crisis, the banks get bailed out, right? The banks get saved. The corporations get saved. It's not the people. So if that's any indication of what the future is like, then we will certainly be headed towards crisis. And again, I guess to finish the episode, it all goes back to that idea of the real economy, where real wealth lies, and that is in the resources that earth provides us and simply the fact that we are not utilizing those resources in a sustainable way that will smash headfirst into our fiat economies. It will prove that the man-made economies, the ones that we try and manipulate and control and change that that economy is no match for sort of the reality of what we face. And that's the, the consequences of the system that we have created over the last several hundred years. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.